Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. This is Susan Robb for New Books Network, I'm talking with Noel Brown, who is a film and television scholar. He's currently lecturer in media and communication at Liverpool Hope University and specializes in Hollywood. This is Susan Robb for New Books Network. I'm talking with Noel Brown, who is a film and television scholar. He's currently lecturer in media and communication at Liverpool Hope University and specializes in Hollywood and in British cinema, and particularly in the area of family and children's entertainment and film. His previous books include the Hollywood family film from Shirley Temple to Harry Potter, family films in global cinema, the world beyond Disney, and British children's cinema, from The Thief of Baghdad to Wallace and Gromit. Now, he has a book called Children's Film Genre, Nation, and Narrative. It's part of the Shortcut series for Wallflower Press, uh, published by Columbia University. Noel, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Well, this is a a terrific topic and one that I would imagine evokes a lot of uh, you know, nostalgia feelings for people as they think about different films that have impacted them over their lives. First, how do you mm. define a children's film? And is that the same as kind of a family film? Yes, this is this is one of the areas the book's very concerned about, actually, the question of, of definition. Uh, actually, um, this is something that that scholars have tended to, to, to neglect some more, I think, in the past. Um, there's, there tends to have been a, a kind of assumption that the children's films are immediately recognisable to people, and therefore no kind of definition may be may be necessary. Um, but in this book, I tend to take the view that the children's films can be defined through various recurrent features that uh, that exist throughout throughout the genre, throughout its broad history. 
Um, I think I think generally children's films usually, but not always, centre on child characters uh, or sometimes childlike grown-up characters like Laurel and Hardy, for example, or sometimes uh, animal protagonists. Uh, you can see that in films like like Dumbo or Flipper, uh, Bambi, films like that, for instance. Um, they tend, I think, to uphold moral and behavioural norms of society. So I think that's one of the what's one of the fundamental roles of a children's film. In some ways, to look at it from a more functional point of view, they do tend to uphold certain norms. Uh, equally, they tend to avoid strongly adult content like graphic portrayals of sex or violence or other potentially disturbing realities. And they generally have an uplifting and an optimistic ending. So the the fabled happy ending. You know, it's not all films have them. There are exceptions, which I talk about in the book as well. But generally, I think children's film have all of these aspects. Uh, in terms of the relation to the family film, uh, I think the two the two genres are very heavily overlapping, but that there are certain distinctions between them. And I think family films tend to be much more associated with commercial production, uh, and very much so in Hollywood. I mean, uh, you mentioned at the outset, I, I wrote a book called The Hollywood Family Film. Many of those films dealt with in the book are widely considered to be children's films, but um, actually in Hollywood, the family film is dominant. And uh, Walt Disney, for instance, repeatedly denied that his films were for children. Uh, he, he actually said at one point, we don't think of grown-ups and we don't think of children. And this is a quotation, but just that fine, clean, unspoiled spot deep down in every one of us that maybe the world has made us forget and that maybe our pictures can help recall. So there's always, there's always that dual address, essentially, in family films, the, the appeal to the adult as well as to the, as well as to the child. But from a textual point of view, uh, often they are pretty similar. Yeah. Now, what do you think of, I, I noticed somewhere in the book you, had, you had alluded to um, a longer time period than some of us might think, that maybe for more than 100 years. What do you think of as the first children's films? Yes, it's a, it's a point of some contention, I think, because one of the one of the, the very earliest uh, uh, films was um, the um, the Sprinkler Sprinkled. It was by the, the Lumiere brothers, and uh, it, it was essentially it was it wasn't a fiction film. It wasn't a narrative film. It was essentially a little vignette of about a minute long, where a gardener's uh, watering the garden, and uh, a naughty boy. Uh, hoses him with a with a garden hose and, and soaks the garden and the gardener sort of angrily chases the boy and gives him a, a smacked bottom for his for his naughtiness. Uh, now some critics have have made the claim that that is the first children's film, um, but it's it's a very it's a very hard question to answer because in the silent period, uh, basically until about 1930. Um, Almost all films were made for a, a sort of general audience where children and adults were not particularly distinguished. So we might look at uh, adaptations of children's literary classics or adaptations of Alice in Wonderland, for instance, in the early 1900s and point to films like that. But essentially all of these silent era films were intended for an all-encompassing audience that included children wouldn't be restricted to any particular audience. In, in essence, they were for the family audience. Now, um, are children's, <coughs> excuse me, films, are, is it seen very differently 
in the US and the UK? I think I think they're, they're viewed broadly in a in a similar way. Um, one of the arguments in the book is that children's films across various different languages and cultures do tend to share many of the same conventions, many of the same rules. Uh, and because children's films are partly defined by the fact that they have to appeal to children, they have to be, they have to instill certain moral and behavioral um, uh, guidelines in, in children. Uh, they, they have that kind of social ritualistic function, but also the fact that they must appeal to children's sensibilities. There has tended to be a, a kind of recurrent narrative aspects that, that run throughout children's films. So I think, I think probably in, in, in America and in Britain, children's films are seen as very culturally important and always have been. But maybe the distinction is that in Britain, there hasn't always been that infrastructure in production to allow the same number of films to be made as there has been in, in America. But um, one solution to that was that um, British, uh, the British film industry essentially created a, a wing uh, of, of its own division called the Children's Film Foundation, which was funded by a tax on uh, every, every person who bought a film ticket in Britain. There was a tax on it called the E.D. Levy. And a portion of this money was allocated to this body called the Children's Film Foundation, which existed between the 1950s and the 1980s. And these were essentially purpose-built children's films that weren't necessarily an adult audience at all. They were solely for children. Uh, they weren't expected to make a profit either. They were, they were films that, that were thought to, uh, to sort of encourage certain values and beliefs, but they weren't for a, a commercial public. So that's one of the big distinctions in America, because America's never had that state-sponsored tradition of children's cinema. So it's interesting because I know uh, even Disney's films right at one point was used for, you know, um, encouraging a feeling of um, patriotism, right? The film has been used for things like patriotism and nationalism, sometimes stretching and over into propaganda, right? Mm, absolutely, yes. I mean, during the Second World War, the American government uh, actually sponsored the production of a series of uh, very patriotic war movies made by Disney. Uh, but this was, this, this tends to be the exception to the rule. Yeah. I mean, periods, in periods of wartime, uh, children's films have a very strongly propagandist potential. And this has been used in various countries, including America, Britain, uh, particularly in countries like Soviet Russia and China, uh, where there has been a strongly political function, uh, where children's films have been seen to, encourage certain nationalistic beliefs in, in child audiences. And it's seen as being that, that sort of uh, social imperative that very much comes across in periods of, uh, of um, social conflict, such as wars. Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things that has struck me with this area of film is it always seems like a very technically rich part of the film genre. You have animation and special effects. Do you, do you think it's kind of a film playground? Yes, I suppose in some ways it can be. I think um, one of the interesting things about the children's film as a genre is that it is extremely diverse from a stylistic point of view. And actually, maybe counterintuitively, a lot of the state-sponsored traditions of children's cinema in countries such as China, Japan, 
uh, India and Soviet Russia, you might imagine that films made under such conditions might be might be rather uniform in style. But uh, actually, the, the, there is a great deal of diversity. So we have the uh, the paper animation that was that was very prevalent in um, in uh, in Germany during the 1930s and 1940s. You had the the Czechoslovakian puppet films of the 1940s 1950s. Various different kinds of, uh, of of animation, of course, uh, cell animation, um, claymation with the the British company Artman. You, there is, there, yeah, there is a very great diversity in style, and sometimes children's films, not always having that commercial mandate, uh, can experiment creatively in ways that mainstream production can't always do. What do you see as a kind of benchmark? moments in children's film? Um, that's, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think possibly each traditions of children's cinema have their own benchmarks, but uh, I think certainly within the Hollywood system, we have to look at, at two, two particular films from the 1930s, one of which is Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was obviously the first feature-length animated uh, film and uh, MGM's adaptation of uh, The Wizard of Oz. I think those are very interesting films because they tend to, um, they tend to deal with a more overtly uh, child-friendly subject matter um, than, than a lot of family films had. I mean, there, there are films such as Little Women from the early 1930s um, that, that had the focus very strongly on the family unit but uh, weren't necessarily particularly... Uh, targeted towards children, but of course these were family films as well. These were films that that confirmed that families did attend pictures as a as a collective, as a unit. You know, parents and children attending together. That's always been a big uh, social function of of children's films and family films. I think so. Within within the Hollywood system, those films definitely stand out for me. But I think I think each tradition of film cinema probably has their own benchmark moments. And one that I noticed too that you mentioned were the Nancy Drew films, which I hadn't been aware of. Yes, that's right. These these were very uh, these were very they were essentially B movies. Um, it's one of the interesting facts of, of Hollywood cinema that children's films have tended to be uh, more second feature films for for small groups of audiences. I mean, I suppose within the Hollywood system. Um, mass audiences, family audiences are usually the uh, the target, the producers. But what we had was in a situation in the 1930s where there would be a certain segmentation of audiences and the child audience was seen not as sufficiently um, profitable to warrant films being exclusively made for children except in the, in the area of B-movies where like you say, in, in the Nancy Drew series, these films were made on a very small budget uh, and were targeted specifically towards children and young adult audiences. So, yeah, they're a very interesting example of, of what might genuinely be considered to be children's films within the Hollywood system, which is generally noted for family films. Now, about uh, movie stars in, in this genre, uh, are there a lot of people who sort of became stars and then stayed within the genre? 
Yes, I suppose I suppose that that is something that's true generally. I think um, one of the the, the most famous, uh, the, the most obvious examples of this would be the the Charles Star figure. And um, during the 1930s, again in Hollywood, the, the the most popular star of the decade for Foley, well, the, the most popular star for for the, the second half of the 1930s at least was Shirley Temple. Um, and I don't think we can really fathom today the extraordinary popularity uh, that she she enjoyed in the 1930s when she was between the ages of about seven and ten. She was the biggest star in the country, yet was was unable to to graduate to to adult uh, productions. Um, So that tends to be something that happens quite a lot with the child star figure. I mean, various other child stars of the period. Jane Withers, uh, Freddie Bartholomew. There's a lot of child stars that fail to graduate, definitely from from that from that arena. Um, and and I think that one of the reasons for this may be that uh, adult audiences, in particular, are rather disturbed by the idea of the child graduating to to a more adult identity, because I think generally in children's films and in popular culture more broadly, this archetype of the innocent child really does recur. And so the idea that a child might be maturing, might have sexual awakenings in some kind of way, I think is somewhat disturbing to a society that valorizes this idea of purity within childhood. It's a very governing ideology, I think. That's so interesting. Yeah. And when you were talking, I was thinking of like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. And it's it in some mm-hmm. cases, what you have too are people who became known in that genre and then you know, have done other kinds of things, but they, we sort of emotionally, I guess, attach to them as, as who they were as child stars, I think. Yes, yes, I think that's true. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a very long history, a very tragic history, of course, of child stars that have, uh, that have had terrible, um, not just careers, but terrible lives as adults and various child stars who've uh, committed suicide or, or died early through some sort of, um, through some kind of personal tragedy, Judy, Judy Garland would be one of them. Yeah. Um, so yes, yes, it, it, yeah, it, it is. It is a sad factor, I think, and it's one of the things that um, maybe we, we tend not to think about too often because it's very disturbing. You know, we have this this idea of uh, of childhood and children's films as a realm of purity and innocence, and the idea that that might be tainted somehow with more worldly adult concerns maybe is quite disquieting. And what about the categories of uh, children's film? I know at one point you talk about family adventure, for example. What? How have the categories evolved? Yes. Um, I mean, I suppose we could look at children's literature um, as, as an example for this. You know, there are lots of different subgenres within the larger categories. And um, I think, I mean, I, I talk in the book about the children's film as being a, a master genre, uh, by which I mean that if a film satisfies various kind of aspects that we associate with a children's film, uh, then it may fit into this idea of a master genre. But stylistically, it might fit into all sorts of smaller genres. So, for instance, the, the fantasy film, uh, the fairy tale film, animal films, comedy films, um, we have all of these different genres, uh, and yet, many of these films might still be recognizable as family films or children's films. So The Wizard of Oz, for instance, 
uh, might be viewed as a, as a fantasy film or as a musical. And it has uh, certain tropes of other genres as well. But I think most people generally associate it as being a children's film or a family film because it does satisfy these various preconditions that we associate with the genre, like the, the defeat of the, of the, the victory of good over evil, for instance, um, the happy ending, the, the, the reaffirmation of family and friendship, these kind of values that are very powerful that recur throughout the, the genre in its wider uh, iterations. Now, lastly, I wanted to ask you, what do you think uh, we might expect going forward, both in the U.S. and the U.K. and other places from this part of the film industry? Yes, I mean, that's, this is something else that I, that I, I do talk about uh, in, in the book at, at some length, this idea that really there's been a broad shift in children's cinema. Um, I talk about these these two values of pedagogy and pleasure in the broader history of children's films, which is to say that many, many children's films have been made from a largely pedagogical perspective. They, they attempt, they're, they're essentially instruments of the socialization process that attempt to instill certain values in children. But at the same time, we have this more escapist function uh, that we see particularly in Hollywood and commercial cinema. I think what's tended to happen since the late 1980s, early 1990s, is that um, there's been a broad international embrace of market economics. And in couple with that, maybe a conviction that it's not the business of the state or the country to be to, to have that propagandist potential, to be, to be in trying to instill values in children. So I think in some ways, what is, what's happened to the children's film might be seen as a microcosm of globalization. Uh, the role of the nation state in sponsoring children's films has largely given way uh, to an international or maybe a transnational system of uh, cultural and financial exchange driven far more by market forces. So the, the state-governed uh, children's cinemas of the Soviet Union, of China, uh, have given way somewhat to a more market-orientated system of international production uh, where many countries, uh, many production companies collaborate to, to pull films together, uh, films that have interna international distribution that might not be embodying the politics of the nation so much as, as more kind of more broader values, essentially. So I think looking forward, what we might see is an acceleration of these processes of uh, cultural globalization. That's hmm, fascinating. And I guess also we're, uh, we're seeing that, uh, who watches a children's film, uh, can be children or families, or it could be adults who just love that genre, right? Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, I think there's been, again, there's been a, a broad recognition that the audiences for children's films are quite often not children. Um, so, I mean, in Hollywood, I think that's always been quite obvious because these are films that are marketed towards family audiences. But certainly in countries in, in Europe as well, uh, there have been various small scale audience studies conducted that really demonstrate that sometimes the amount of adults consuming children's films actually outnumbers the amount of children watching them. So in what on what on what level can we still consider these to be children's films? So. We don't necessarily think of them in terms of the audience, but in terms of those generic aspects, those those conventions that I was I was talking about earlier. And Noel, where can people go if they want to read more about your research or or about 
the books? Um, well, a lot of a lot of my research is actually freely available uh, online, uh, open access. So if um, if if any listeners wanted to to hear more, um, they might want to look at my page on uh, academia.edu, uh, where I have a number of uh, a number of articles and book chapters uh, on there as well. And of course. Um, I think uh, the this this current book on the children's films available as as an ebook um, and and also you know on, on Amazon and such like and etc. But uh, I think the, the the Hollywood family film book, the British children's cinema, and the children's films books are all available online as ebooks as well. Great. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Noel. Thank you for talking with me about this. This is some um, fascinating topic. I really really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, and thanks for uh, getting in touch. Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?" Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.